Thank you, Jim. Good morning. It's good to see everybody here. This morning we're going to open with a little visual demonstration of our scripture passage for the day. I'm going to draft a few volunteers to help me here. I'd like Hanya to come on up. Come on up, Hanya. Oh, man, if that looks could kill. Matthew, you too. Come on. You have to put the phone down. Come on up. Come on up. Okay. Or at least in your pocket. Thank you very much. Okay. Hanya, you stand right there. Matthew, stand right there. Huh? Oh, she's very uncomfortable, folks. So let's give her a big hand and tell her we love her. Make her hopefully more comfortable. Okay. All right, you two are going to race. You're going to race from here. See, she's, she's a smart lady. To here. It's going to be a very short race. Okay? On your mark, get set. Wait, wait. <laughs> but first... Hi, Matt. How are you, brother? Good, 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 good. I'm just, just stay put. Stay put. I'm not quite done. This is the Bible Bowl tug-of-war rope, those of you who have been involved with Bible Bowl know that. So we're going to put this around Matthew here. Like that. Here, put your arm up. There you go. Okay. No, just wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. I'm not done yet. Next thing we're going to do. Okay. You ready? On your mark. Get set. Go. Go. Run, run, run. Come on, come on. You're racing. You're racing. You're racing. Who's going to win? Come on, come on, come on. Oh, man. Really, really underwhelming effort there, folks. That's what i got to say. Thank you very much. You'll, you'll, you'll see this will actually make sense here in a minute. Thank you very much, Matthew. Thank you, Hanya. And we're not going to have a tug-of-war before we're done here, Matthew, because you would win that one. Yeah, okay. Thank you. Okay. Now that I've sufficiently embarrassed both Hanya and Matthew, let's talk about what this is all about. Now, if any of you were advising Matthew about how to run his race after I wrapped the rope around him and gave him the rocks, huh? what would you have said to him? Well, of course you'd say, you know, Matthew, if you're going to run this race with any hope at all of any kind of success, you need to get rid of anything that can slow you down or trip you up, right? right. That's the idea. So this morning, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Oh, let's go back. Okay, there we go. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. You might uh, hang on to that verse if you have your Bibles, because we're going to spend most of the morning in this text. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, we all have a race to run, don't we? It's called life. As those trusting in Christ as our eternal hope, we have laid out before us, or set before us, as this passage of Scripture says, a course. And it's a course in this life with a view to the next life, where the finish line is. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. 
And there are specific things that we are encouraged to do in this race. That's our goal this Sunday and next Sunday, to mine these verses of God's Word, to learn some of His instructions for our race. Now, it doesn't really tell us very much about what our race will look like. It tells us some things. But it does give us enough to make it clear that in Christ, this is a race we can run and we can finish. Paul wrote to Timothy in uh, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So we have a race to run. We have a goal to finish. And a reward expected, as Paul says, the crown of righteousness. We see a lot of athletic imagery in Scripture. And that was quite common in the literature of the time, not just in Scripture that we have. Often both in and outside of Christian writing, it was used to illustrate the moral battle waged by the wise person. So let's start our look at this idea with the very first word of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. That word is therefore. Clearly it's a transition word. Clearly it's a reminder that what came before this verse is essential for us to understand what follows this verse. Some have called the chapter immediately preceding this verse the Faith Hall of Fame. It's definitely a chapter where faith is primary. It begins with a definition of faith. We see that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. That's pretty important as we move along through this passage, so remember it. But as we run this race effectively and faithfully, we must be assured that the things that we hope for are true. We must be convinced that the things which we have yet to see will come to pass. In other words, we must trust that what God's Word tells us about Himself and about our lives is absolutely true. As the chapter progresses, chapter 11, we see many familiar and some not so familiar names from Scripture in Hebrews chapter 11. We see Abel, we see Enoch, we see Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, all fairly familiar names in Scripture. We also see some a little less familiar names like Rahab and Gideon and Barak, no, not that one, and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel. And then we see many more unnamed heroes. But nevertheless, even those who are unnamed are commended as heroes and in verse 38, it tells us the world was not worthy of them. And then in verses 39 and 40, we read the summary of all that we read before in Hebrews chapter 11. These, that is all these named and even those unnamed heroes, were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Something better. Something better. This is a very key theme. It's a key idea throughout the book of Hebrews in which we learn that the new covenant is way better than the old. And we learn that the sacrifice of Jesus was way better than the Old Testament sacrifices. And in the end, what we have in store for us in eternity is so much better than even the very best things in this life. 
that this life, including the trials that we face, pales in comparison. So when we read, therefore, in verse 1 of Hebrews 12, that's the thought that's being continued. That's the thought that's being expanded on. This is one example in Scripture of how our chapter divisions aren't always helpful. There really probably should be no chapter division here since Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 really is the climax in the whole argument about the better promises, which begins way back in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Of course, we know that the chapters and the verse numbers in Scripture were just helpful additions to help us find our place, to help us find references more easily. But we also know that they're not inspired, like the very words of Scripture are inspired. And sometimes without careful interpretation, they can be a little bit, little bit misleading, like this in chapter 12. You may think that the beginning of chapter 12 is actually starting a new thought. However, therefore, the writer tells us, referring to what came before, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So immediately, what comes to mind when we read this? A race, right? Also what may come to mind is maybe a stadium or arena with hundreds, maybe thousands of people watching. That's the imagery that we think of here. It's interesting that because of that imagery, we may immediately jump to the conclusion that all these heroes of the faith are somehow, through a window from eternity into time, watching you and me as we run our race. I think of myself here in the pulpit this morning and maybe Bill Sanders and Chuck Farah, Willard Hudson, other men who've been in this pulpit have gone before. Maybe they're watching me. But if we're careful interpreters of Scripture, the best we can say about this idea is perhaps. In other words, perhaps those who have gone before us, including these great heroes of the faith, named and unnamed in chapter 11, are watching us run our race as a stadium full of people might watch a football game or an Olympic race, perhaps. But even if it does mean that, which I think we have to be very careful about assuming here this morning, there's a much more important meaning to the word witnesses that we read here, something that's vital to this understanding of how we run this race set before us. Witness here doesn't mean just watching. It means testifying. It means proclaiming. It means more along the lines of what we say when we use the word witnessing to describe what we do in evangelism. We're going to go witnessing, right? I'm going to go witnessing. So-and-so witness to me. That's a biblical idea. After all, in uh, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you, referring to his disciples, and by uh, extrapolation to us, you will be my witnesses. But just how are we witnesses? When one of us says we're going witnessing, do we assume that that means we're going to watch something? No. We assume that we mean we're going to testify. We're going to proclaim what Christ has done on the cross for us. We assume that we're going to quote-unquote witness to the reality of the gospel in our lives. So too in this passage, the cloud of witnesses we are surrounded by includes these great heroes of the faith. These great heroes of the faith have overcome. They have persevered. They have finished their race. And like us, they await eternal rewards. And as those who have been there and done that, 
Their very lives speak volumes to us. They witness to the reality of God's faithfulness. Now this understanding of witness is reinforced by the fact that the same word for witnesses or witness is used in the previous chapter, which as we've already noted, is part of the thought process concluded with the beginning of chapter 12. When considering what the word witnesses refers to here, the great 1800s preacher uh, Alexander McLaren from Scotland noted this. He said, the answer will be found by observing the frequent occurrence of the word and its related words in that chapter. We read there, for instance, that the elders had witness born to them in verse 2 that Abel, by the acceptance of his sacrifice, had witness born to him that he was righteous, God bearing witness in his respect, in respect of his gifts, that Enoch had witness born to him that he had been well-pleasing unto God, and that the whole illustrious succession had witness born to them through their faith. We see these things. So while at best we might be able to presume that this means we have these saints actually watching us as we run our race and cheering us on, we can be sure that it means that they have testified with their very lives of the faithfulness of God. And that's the key point here, folks, regardless of what we think about whether or not these saints are actually watching. The word witnesses here does not refer to mere spectators, but testifiers who testify from their own experience to God's fulfilling his promise as shown in Hebrews chapter 11. So they may or may not be witnesses to our race, but they are witnesses by the fact that their lives bear testimony to the monumental, persevering faith that, like Abel's, still speaks even though he is dead. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Additionally, we have to remember that the Greek word for witness is the same word from which we get our English word martyr. The word rendered Witnesses has a narrower meaning in later usage, according to which it comes to signify those who have sealed their testimony with their blood, in which sense it is transferred untranslated into English in the word martyr. What an eloquent epitome of the early history of the church lies in that one fact. So ordinarily had a faithful confessor to die for his testimony that the very name had the thought of a bloody death inextricably associated with it. That's pretty sobering when we think about that and then we think of how casually we use the phrase we're going witnessing, right? We're going to become martyrs? Is that what it means? One more thought on these witnesses. Now these witnesses were commended for their faith, for their perseverance, for their hope. But every one of them was imperfect. We look at our own sin We look at our own shortcomings, and we can sometimes despair. How can God ever use me? How can God ever commend me? Jacob, who was mentioned in this Heroes Hall of Fame, was a deceiver. We see that borne out throughout his life. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Samson betrayed his own people. I am grateful that these imperfect people were commended as heroes, not for their sins, but for their faith and their trust in God. They were real people, folks, just like you and me. That gives me hope for me. So we're surrounded by, hopefully we're encouraged by, the memory of this cloud of witnesses. And then, with that understood, we see next that we are encouraged to lay aside every weight. 
Now, when Matthew was on stage getting ready to run, weren't you thinking how much more difficult it was going to be to run with that weight that he was carrying and that rope that he had tangled around his legs? That's the simple metaphor here in Hebrews. I actually thought about titling this morning's sermon, Running Naked, but I thought that would be a little bit more difficult to illustrate than the little demonstration that we did here this morning. But running naked is how Greek athletes competed in ancient times. They wanted no encumbrance, no dead weight, nothing that would slow them down. One commentator noted that it may refer to the artificial weights that are used in training sometimes, but not in competition. I think of example of a baseball player who's next up to bat, puts a weight on his bat for some practice swings, right? But when he's up at the plate, he takes it off or lays aside that weight, so then the bat feels lighter when he's actually up at the plate swinging at pitches. But most likely what this word means is it refers to the Greek custom of stripping off clothes to run unencumbered. We can even see in the evolution of running gear the very same idea. No one runs naked anymore, at least not without getting arrested. So concerns about modesty required clothing. And then we see in the early 1900s that runners wore things that probably did slow them down some. Now for most of us, a few fractions of a second don't make much difference. But for world-class sprinters, that's the difference between gold medals and fifth place. So we see the evolution of running gear from bulky and loose fitting to tight and form fitting. The closest thing to naked you can get without being naked. The idea is speed. The idea is that there's nothing to hinder that speed. The goal is to win, so sprinters lay aside every weight, anything that can slow them down. That's the idea here. I can picture the guy coming out to shoot a basketball, and he's got a heavy coat on. You know what? He's also probably not going to have a ball cap on. Joel, we've talked about this before. Joel and I go to ORU ball games together, and they'll have these promotions during timeouts and halftime where somebody comes out to shoot a basketball and every time the guy comes out with a basketball cap on and I shake my head and I say it ain't going to happen. We know he's not going to do well because you can't shoot well with a basketball cap on. It's a hindrance. It gets in the way of your shot if you have any kind of shot to begin with. Now clothing we'd all agree is a good thing and here in Hebrews weight doesn't necessarily mean something that's inherently bad or sinful. That seems clear by the fact that sin is mentioned separately as something that clings closely or entangles us. So if we think of the demonstration we did earlier, there's the weight that Matthew was carrying, the rocks, but then there was the sin that was entangling him around his feet. So the weight could mean something other than sin, though it seems clear that some sin can be a weight too. But extra weight hinders us. Something that in and of itself may not be sin, but nevertheless demands our attention. It slows us down. It hinders our progress. It weighs us down. It hinders our effective running of the race. What could those things be? Something maybe like money or possessions. Something like a hobby. Something like a sport. Now, they're good things. Those things are all good in and of themselves. But perhaps in some circumstances, these things can be the kind of weight that we see described here. Slowing us down hindering our progress in our individual race. Perhaps they've become an unhealthy priority, crowding out more important things in our spiritual lives. So I'm not going to tell you what those things are. There's a few ideas. Let the Holy Spirit bring conviction to you for that. And then, of course, we see the next part, which is even more clear, the sin that easily entangles us 
or clings so closely or trips us up. Now that too is probably going to be different for you than it is for me. Some of us are more prone to certain sins than others. But whatever that sin is for you, and for me, we must, according to this passage of Scripture, lay it aside or throw it off. It might include the idea of that sin that we always seem to fight, we can't ever seem to get rid of. For some of us, it's pride. You know, for some men here, it's porn. For some others of us here, it might be something else altogether. Yet the admonition is clear. We cannot allow it to entangle us or to trip us up because it hinders our race. That's why the visual image we used this morning is very appropriate. You get rope tangled around your legs and you just can't move like you're supposed to. You can't walk even hardly. And I didn't tie it very tight. There are some sins that seem to be more entangling, harder to lay aside or throw off. The King James Version calls these besetting sins. We've heard that phrase. They are sins that attract us and they hang on to us with the promise of pleasure, including even some that really don't bring much happiness or enjoyment. At least it's very temporary if they do, but they only bring disappointment and despair. The interesting thing is we see this illustrated even in nature. How about the fly that lands on the leaf to taste the sweetness that grows there, and instantly you have these finger-like hairs that bend over and touch the fly's wing, holding it firm in a sticky grasp. The fly struggles to get free, but the more it struggles, the more hopelessly it's trapped. And soon the fly relaxes because to its fly mind, well, things could be worse because it extends its tongue and still continues to feast on the sweetness that's there, but it's held more firmly by even more sticky tentacles. And just as this happens, we indulge our besetting sins. When the captive is entirely at the plant's mercy, the edge of the leaf folds inward, forming a closed fist. And about two hours later, that fly is nothing but an empty, sucked, dry skin. Now, I don't know about you folks, but that's a fairly terrifying illustration of how sin can entangle us. It traps us. It sucks the life out of us. It sucks us dry, and it can kill us. That's why scripture says make every effort. And we're not talking about the fly's efforts to escape. There clearly comes a time when it's too late. That's why the word tells us in Romans to put to death our sinful nature. Now these are extreme actions. And they're part of what this passage of Hebrews is telling us when it says that we must lay aside or throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. You'll never run the race that is set before you if you do not put off your clinging sins. What are your besetting sins? Will you name them before God? He knows them perfectly. Going deeper, the question is, what hinders you? Literally, what is the weight that hinders you? Most likely, it's not a sin. It might be something that's good, good for others, but bad for you, a place, a pleasure, a hobby, an event, an entertainment. And remember that race is a metaphor for our spiritual life, meaning that our relationship with the Lord is damaged by our sin, and it can be damaged by whatever else weighs us down, good or bad. So we have to lay aside, or as the NIV says, throw off sin. Now that implies something we do, right? That implies effort. 
The comparison of the Christian life to a race itself implies effort, doesn't it? And herein lies another challenge for us as we look at this verse. Isn't all of our life in Christ one of grace? Isn't that what it's about? Yes, it is. Don't we see so much in Scripture that tells us how hopeless we are without the grace of God and how worthless our own efforts are? Here's one example that we studied at House Church just a few weeks ago. I'll read this to you from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, where Paul chided the Galatians. He said, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So that's just one example. We could cite many more. It's clear that our works, our efforts, do nothing to justify us or sanctify us. Yet, here's the problem. We also see passages like this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. Make every effort, it says. And then we see in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Well, that's a little bit of a challenge, isn't it? It says make every effort. It says toil and strive. It says train yourself for godliness. All of these things mean our efforts. They are something we do. I think sometimes our fear of spiritual discipline is really a fear of legalism. For some, it might mean, it might feel like we're putting ourselves back under the law. Well, I've got to do these things with a bunch of rules that no one can live up to. What does this breed? Total frustration. Because we just can't. We just can't. Scripture's clear about that too. But the truth is, discipline and legalism are very different. The difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalistic heart says, I will do this thing to gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and want to please him. There is an infinite difference between the motivation of legalism and discipline. The Apostle Paul knew this implicitly, and he fought the legalist bare-knuckled all the way across Asia Minor, never giving an inch. And now he shouts to us, train or discipline yourself to be godly. If we confuse legalism and discipline, we do so to our soul's peril. So, how do we reconcile faith and works or effort in the life of a believer? We don't, folks. We don't reconcile them. Properly understood, they are two sides of the same coin. We see many examples of this in Scripture, that you cannot earn your way to God and you cannot sanctify yourself, yet we see these other seemingly contradictory passages that tell us to work out 
our salvation, to train ourselves for godliness. These things seem to command effort and work, something we do rather than just simply what's done to us. We begin to see the answer in passages like Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, which says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we have that. But then we also have the next line. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's both and, folks. We're to work out our salvation, yet at the same time, it is God who works in us. He works in us. He works in our very will, we read in this passage of Scripture, to work for his good pleasure. So, though it's true we must make effort in our growth in godliness, the Spirit empowers through and through. We have already been changed. We're assuming we're in Christ. We have already been changed. We are already new creations in Christ and have a new strength at work in our inner being, producing gospel fruit in us by the Spirit. The Bible expects that because God dwells in us by the Spirit, we can, by that same Spirit, begin to share in the qualities that are characteristic of God himself. Of course, there is still a fight within us, but with the Spirit, there can be genuine progress and victory. The New Testament simply asks us to be who we are. The New Testament simply asks us to be who we are. So back to our passage in Hebrews. We see this admonition to divest ourselves of anything that can hinder our race, including, maybe especially including, our sin. Then we see that we need to do this, why? So we can run. And not just run, but run with endurance. The idea here is not just to run, but to keep on running. Combining this with the passage from 1 Timothy that we read just a moment ago, which said, train yourself for godliness, we begin to see a theme developing here, don't we? Endurance. Endurance. And it's developed by training. One writer said that's what's called for, it's some spiritual sweat. He said some spiritual sweat is called for in our spiritual lives. So we see endurance, which means a bearing up under patience, endurance as to things or circumstances. This word is associated with hope, and it refers to that quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. So how do you get that quality of character? How do you get the quality of character which doesn't surrender to circumstance, which doesn't succumb under trial? Anybody have any trials here? I think we don't have to raise our hands. Everybody's got trials. All God's children's got trials, right? So how do we get that quality of character? Faith. 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 Trusting in Christ. Remember the therefore in Hebrews 12.1 was referring to the previous chapter, the faith chapter. We'll see that more as we move along, especially next week. But here, at least this far into the chapter, we're still asked to remember these heroes of the faith. We're asked to remember their endurance as models of encouragement for us. But as we see so often in Hebrews, we're alerted to a very clear 
comparison. Remember, we noted that much of this epistle is devoted to the theme of better. Better. This is better than that. A better covenant. A better sacrifice. And here, after seeing all these heroes of the faith that are commended to us as heroes of the faith, we see another kind of better. We see a better model. We see a better example of endurance and perseverance. At the beginning of verse 2, we see this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. So we see in these three verses, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we see four distinct commands. We see the first is divest. We divest ourselves or we lay aside first any hindrance and also any sin. The next is run. Run the race. Live your life in Christ. Not just any race, but your race. You can't run someone else's race for them. Your race is different than mine. Your race may be harder than mine. But God says you must run your own. And it's a race set before you. It's marked out by God. That's the idea here. There's a very clear path. We don't always see it, but God does. In his perfect wisdom and his plan for you. And then we see we must keep on running, running with endurance. And we see the command later to focus, to fix your eyes on Jesus. And then lastly, we see the command to consider. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus and his sinful life. Now next week, we're going to pick up where we left off. And where we're leaving off today is fixing our eyes on Jesus. I think that's a good place to leave you this morning, don't you? Maybe you'll get stuck there, huh? Maybe you'll get stuck there fixing your eyes on Jesus, and that's not a bad place to be stuck at all. Amen? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that we are indeed surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, Heavenly Father. People of faith who have gone before us and have lived lives and, Father, have trusted in you in extraordinary circumstances and in ordinary circumstances. Father, it helps us to remember that they're very much like we are, that they're flesh and blood, they're real people with real faults, but real faith. Father, we want to be a people of real faith. We want to remember this cloud of witnesses, Father. We want to lay aside every weight we want to put aside and throw off every encumbrance, every sin that entangles us, Father, to enable us to run the race, Heavenly Father. We are grateful for these admonishments in this chapter of Scripture, and we're grateful for your word, which is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it would indeed today penetrate into our hearts and our spirits as we seek to follow you. Heavenly Father, we commit this to you, and thank you for this time. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.